Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? Hey, I'm doing well. I mean, we are doing our first uh, long distance recording in a while in different places. We're going to see how that turns out. So bear with us, listeners, while we navigate this. We don't have a Come Follow Me lesson plan for another two weeks. Since conference hasn't happened yet, we wanted to take the time today to go over what in essence is going to be the next lesson, which is Easter. And then we also want to take some time to uh, prepare for conference a little bit. President Nelson has asked us to ponder the first vision. So Derek and I want to take some time to talk about that. And we also just want to talk about in general how we can prepare for conference because inevitably we're going to hear something that we don't like. So we we do want to take some time to prepare for that eventuality at the end of the show. So with that, let us begin by talking a little bit. I think Easter was the first thing on the docket, Derek. Is that right? Correct? Yeah, let's talk about Easter. Do you want to begin that conversation? Yeah, I think one of the most profound insights that I have about Easter is that it's literally a coming out narrative. And it's not just like, oh, a, a coincidence of the phrasing, like Jesus came out of the tomb. Right. But what he did is he came out into a new kind of life. It's not just he was raised to die again. He was raised into a glorious body that is so amazing and so different, and it's just a different way of life. And right. that parallels the journey of those who come out. And we come out into a new identity that we can never go back to what it was before. And that provides the context for which I'm grounding the, the story of Easter. Mm. And for me, the resurrection is really the central focus of Christianity um, because it provides the ground of our hope. Let me just quote here from First Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Basically, he's saying we're born again into a new kind of hope, a living hope, by means of this resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, sir. And I also want to connect Easter with Passover because it's in some sense a recapitulation of Passover You've got the trauma in Egypt, you've got the passing through of the sea, and you've got a coming out on the other side completely different, a new identity for the people of Israel Mm. in some ways. um, In fact, in many languages, it's the same word for Passover and Easter in many European languages. There is a strong connection here. Um, This happened at Passover time, the resurrection. It's just intimately connected with liberation Mm-hmm. And it goes back to the context of the Roman Empire in some ways when the Roman officials, the law enforcement, crucified Jesus. They were acting in the power of the Roman Empire. And the mm-hmm. resurrection of Jesus from the dead is an undoing of that power of the Roman Empire saying, mm-hmm. look, you don't have the last word on this. There's something greater going on. Thank you for pointing that whole thing out about how Jesus was crucified by the state in essence and ultimately that kind of uh the fact that he rose was kind of a a middle finger to the institution like what that whole thing meant like what christ's resurrection meant was that non-creative powers cannot destroy god's creation you know what i'm saying like 
Jesus' mm-hmm. actions in resurrection represent God's will not to let his creation be destroyed by human hands. That the freedom promised is now available in Christ. And that is something that all of us can really latch on to. It's one of the reasons I really like going to black church on Easter Sunday, simply because those profound implications that the uh, Eastern narrative has for us in particular is um, something that I can't necessarily gain when I go to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on Sunday. The events of his crucifixion and resurrection, they really give meaning to Christ's ministry to the poor and other dispossessed members of of society as a deliberate effort to liberate the oppressed in an act of divine will. Like his story becomes our story. It becomes the black person's story. It becomes the gay person's story. It becomes the woman's story. It becomes the marginalized person's story as is written. It, it, it becomes the poor person's story as is written in the, the scriptures that he became po- poor, that he embraced poverty, that the poor themselves could become rich, that they could become liberated from both poverty and powerlessness as you as you kind of indicated by Jesus overcoming the crucifixion at the hands of the state through his resurrection and what Jesus Christ does there is super profound like he he transforms the condition of poverty and slavery and institutional police brutality all kinds of oppression he turns all of that oppression into a battleground for the struggle of freedom and like he turns the lowest humiliations into the highest dignities like that is what the resurrection to me is all about it's what christ's resurrection i believe means to us it's something that is implicitly understood at least any time a black person goes to church among their peers it's just further knowledge that ultimately no voice will be silenced nobody's going to stay in the ground and no one's going to go to the to their grave in vain not at the hands of any worldly powers like it's like so many of those spirituals and so many of those hymns we sing like they know that there is rest in christ they know that ultimately we will receive peace and they know that ultimately we will receive a crown because jesus paid that price because he himself did not let himself uh, stay in the grave as a result of an unhuman, unloving hand. So I I definitely just kind of want to add an amen to what you said about the purpose of that resurrection and the power of that resurrection. And I want to transfer that to uh, black theology in particular in saying once again that Christ's resurrection turned the lowest form of humiliation, the greatest forms of oppression into the highest dignities and allowed us to believe that freedom is promised and now available in Christ. That's what Easter is all about. It's all about liberation. It's all about liberation from captivity, from the grave, and it's all about the promise of exaltation. Like without it, without that crowning event of resurrection, our faith really does not exist. You know, and what you just said reminded me of James Cone's framing of the cross as a lynching tree. And the resurrection yes, is the yes. undoing of a lynching. And that is a powerful political act yes. to spread a narrative yes. in the Roman Empire that the Jesus whom you crucified is now raised from the dead. I mean, that is 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 absolutely ground-shaking and, and controversial and transgressive within its historical context. 
Yes. I want to move into one yes. other thing about the resurrection narratives, um, especially in John's version. But all right. in all of them, you have women being the focus of the resurrection story, women witnesses who were there present mm-hmm. at the tomb. In, in many ways, it's, it's almost a coronavirus experience because you have a lot of confusion. You have people huddling in, their, uh, in the upper room together. You have people in fear. In John, you have a locked door out of fear. You have so many interesting things that there's this confusion and this panic. And the women go to the tomb and their familiar morning ritual is morning, M-O-U-R-N. Um, that they're mourning for Jesus. Uh, their funerary rites are interrupted by the absence of the body. It's just so interesting that the women were chosen to be some of the first, the first witnesses of the resurrection. Yeah. In part, they were also, the, with the exception of the beloved disciple, all of the other disciples ran away. None of them were at the cross. It was the women who stayed at the cross, who watched where Jesus was buried, and witnessed the empty tomb. It was the women here. And I think that is very powerful because when you see Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20, it's very clear that she is commissioned by Jesus to go tell something to the to the male disciples. That is interesting. Mm. She's part of the chain Quite. of command. She's part of the chain of revelation. She is commissioned. She's basically the apostle to the apostles. She is mm. uh, actually performing a priesthood function. She is taking an official revelation from God, from Jesus, and delivering it to the priesthood leaders. I mean, that is a priesthood yeah. function. Yeah. He he yeah. tells he tells her, "Look, um, don't touch me, but go to my brethren and say to them that I'm ascending uh, to my Father and your Father." This is this is a priesthood function that she is performing here it absolutely is she's the first witness she's the first witness yes exactly of the resurrected savior and i just really want to to bring that out here as empower what i feel i can't speak for women but i feel that this is empowering the idea that women have the capacity to teach to preach to deliver messages from god to god's servants like this is to me without question one of the most important justifications for the role of women in the church at all levels yeah definitely and i want to bring this tie this into this resurrection mindset is what gives lgbtq people hope for change in the church because a lot of people say well this can't change this is never going to change this is impossible there's like we're stuck in this and there's no way that even god could get get us out of this i'm like no Mm -hmm. if god can raise people from the dead you you already you don't even know what you're saying if you can't imagine that God can get us out of out of whatever hole we're in. Right. You know, right. I love what it says in Matthew 19 verse 26, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Mm-hmm. Like it is mm-hmm. possible for us to change. We just have to be prepared for it and God will lead us through. Right. And in the end the change won't feel like a change if we're if we're prepared for it. Right. But I fully believe that there's no basis for saying this can never change i mean i guarantee you that every change in the church that has happened there's been people just before that who said this will never change yeah many of our policies have changed the way we've formulated and presented our doctrines has changed every major and minor doctrine we've had some substantive 
modification in how we teach it. It's just yeah. that's how it is. And you know what's interesting about the whole coronavirus situation is that today, Thursday, March 26th, is the first day in my entire life that we've had marriage equality in the temples. Because now the temples are throughout the world are completely closed to all living ordinances. Mm. And that means the number of same gender ceilings and the number of different gender ceilings is now exactly equal. It's zero for both. Mm. We now have marriage equality in the temple. Mm. Now, that's just a technicality, obviously, because <laughs> we're going to go back right. to a, a situation of of marginalization and discrimination. We still will have discrimination against my people once the pandemic passes. But what this just does is gives people a hint of a taste of what queer families are going through at this time. Some people's plans for sealing may be temporarily interrupted. Some right. people may not be able to celebrate with their families. It, and it's not even a full understanding. It's just mm -hmm. a taste of a hint mm -hmm. of what it's like to be separated from your loved ones, what it's like to not hold hands with someone, what it's mm -hmm. like to not be able to be sealed when you, when you have plans to be sealed. Yep. There's just all these things that, are, that simulate a piece of the queer experience in the church. Mm -hmm. And maybe that will give straight people in the church some empathy for us and say, well, why are we arbitrarily excluding this group of people from the same blessings we take for granted? Because now we realize we're taking them for granted because we don't have them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much all I wanted to say about Easter. Anything else you had? Yeah, like I just kind of want to put a button on it by saying that resurrection is, it doesn't exist outside of time and it's not so inaccessible. It's, it's much more than... Um, Jesus getting up on the third day to some medical marvel. Right. It's a lot more than that. The resurrection really tells us something about God. It really tells us about the entire New Testament, the whole of the Bible. It really tells us a story of liberation for everybody. Like resurrection is a lot of things to a lot of people, to everybody. It's liberation, not just from sin and death, but it's also liberation from injustice. It's the end of injustice. It's liberation for the oppressed. It's solidarity with the powerless. It's liberation from cruel affluence, from cruel poverty. It's admitting our mistakes and the role they played in the injustices everybody's experienced. It's an end to segregation and to isolation. It's an end to all that is wrong with our world. That's what I probably love most about the resurrection is just how profound and accessible it is not just to jesus christ in his day but to us today yeah that that is so important to to punctuate that uh with that observation because jesus is isn't a reanimated corpse this isn't just like a zombie this right. is he's not a zombie G this is the whole <laughs> world is different it's not just some dead guy came back to life the whole world is completely different in light of the resurrection mm. yes sir yes sir so anyway, I'm very curious to hear how you want to connect this to uh, the first vision, if you think this yeah, is Yeah, let's do that. I want to just jump what, to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 and 9. He's listing out the uh, a sequence of resurrection witnesses, including the 12, including the 500. Um, they're just, he lists all of these people, some of them by name, and then he says, quote, And last of all, he, meaning Jesus, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles, 
that I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, what he's saying is mm. he appeared to all these people and then appeared to me. And it's almost certain that he's talking about the uh, appearance on the road to Damascus. That is when the the really the only time we have a re recording of Paul seeing the risen Jesus. Um, yeah. And so what's interesting about that is um, it's very similar to the the first vision because you in in both cases you have an appearance of the risen Jesus as the focus you have a call as mm -hmm. well because many people talk about this as the conversion of Paul but it's really a call because he was already um, a believing Jew he already had a relationship with the covenant God it's not like he abandoned Judaism it's that he was called into believing in the risen Messiah and and becoming an apostle of him and I think that's something to be uh. to be noticed because he never stopped being Jewish, um, even in belief. Right, right. He was always Jewish in his entire life, and he was a Pharisee as well. Um, so let's let's take that and compare that to what happened with Joseph Smith because this was an appearance of God that changed his entire life that that made him uh, experience a new reality. And then in both cases, you've got someone called to be either a prophet or an apostle. And there's this magnitude of the call that changes their entire life. And nothing can go back to the way it was in light of that encounter. And I want to connect the first division now with the experience of teenage LGBTQ individuals. Now, all of these narratives are going to be different. This is not going to be the same for everyone. Some teens don't even have to come out. They just like one day say oh this is my boyfriend like it's the most normal thing in the world because it is um, and they don't have to come out mm -hmm. but people of my generation had to come out because the assumption was that we were all straight and that we all needed to hide who we are and until we come out no one knows that we're gay but anyway so here's what we've got is a 14 year old boy who's really confused who doesn't know what to do calls out to God and then receives some information that is extremely shocking to others. If you look at the reaction of people at the time, the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the, uh, especially the ministers of other faiths, they were horrified by, by this, even though there are some examples of other people having first vision-like experiences in the early 19th century. Other people had visions like this, but for him, it was shocking, be especially because of the message that all other churches were, were wrong. And now you notice his reaction is he was so afraid to tell others. He he rarely ever talked about this, and it wasn't until, I think, 1832 that he ever even wrote it down, 12 years afterward. Um, and I don't think it was really publicized in the church until the late 1830s uh, with the with the document uh, 1838 the one the document we now have in the pearl of great price so he kept this really close to his heart at first the first vision wasn't the core of the evangelistic message in the 1830s it was other things like the book of mormon um a, a zionistic utopianism and other of these things like the the first vision wasn't part of the missionary discussions at all literally if you look at the early pamphlets this is something he kept close to mm -hmm. himself 
Right. And I think that's really the experience of LGBT people. We have this fundamental realization of who we are, who we're meant to be, and who God is calling us, and then we're afraid to tell people. And he found out a truth about himself that he was afraid for the rest of the world to know because they wouldn't understand. And I love how in Joseph Smith history, um, 1 verse 28, it says, During the space of time which intervened between the time I had the vision and the year 1823, so in those three years, having been forbidden to join any of the religious sects of the day and being of very tender years, and persecuted by those who ought to have been my friends and to have treated me kindly. And then he goes on. But that's what I want to hit on is when he tried sharing this, he was persecuted by those who ought to have been his friends and those who ought to have treated him kindly, which is exactly what LGBTQ people. We, um, unlike some other minorities, which are more visible and um, um, more segregated from society, we can be hurt by the people close to us. We are persecuted by our parents, our communities, our schools, our families and friends, the people that are closest to us and should be the ones who treat us kindly. Right. And that's what Joseph faced. He minimized, after this persecution, he really minimized the telling of the first vision story. And I get that. What happened is all of these ministers and people around Joseph were stubborn and closed-minded, and they were not open to something new. And that's exactly mm. what happens to the people who refuse to be allies to LGBTQ people. Mm. What do you think of all these things? I love them, first of all. I'm not going to... I'm not going to say anything additional because that's not uh, that's not really for me to say with regard to the uh, community, but it all makes a lot of sense to me, and I vibe with it very well. I just think it's very insightful how you you know really make those parallels between a dispossessed community in the church and the very founder of that same church. I think that's a very necessary thing that you just did, and uh, I personally appreciate it as it helps me with my own blind spots with regard to that community, especially people who are not as visible in terms of their dispossession the way that uh, people like me are. So thank you for sharing that. I really do appreciate it. If I may, Derek, I have, in my own ponderings of the first vision, just one thought just kept coming to my mind, and that was how important it is to seek personal revelation. I thought specifically about how Nephi, even when a prophet received revelation, he still sought his own revelation. In doing so, Nephi received new truths and information that was not made apparent in Lehi's account. And what he learned in his vision basically defined his ministry for the rest of his life and the ministry of those that came after him. Nephi had specific questions and concerns during his uh, interactive part of the vision of the tree of life that he saw that were unanswered by his own ecclesiastical leader, Lehi. And the answers that he received were so profound that they altered the course of his life and the course of history. And similarly for Joseph Smith, the light and knowledge he obtained as a direct result of the first vision has radically altered how people view and interact with the divine in addition to bearing the all-important witness that Jesus is the Christ and that it is through him that we are saved. From that event that we regard as the onset of the restoration of the gospel, we learn more about the nature of God, that the heavens are open, that God answers prayers, and that you know the Godhead are one in purpose, not in substance. As a result of that vision, the priesthood authority has been restored. 
We received the Book of Mormon and additional revelations in the DNC and the Pearl of Great Price. Ultimately, what we have received is more tools to serve our fellow man, to receive peace and a testimony of Christ, and to reunite us with God because of a personal revelation that Joseph Smith sought. So when we read his story and the story of the first vision, we on the margins in particular must not underestimate the role and power of personal revelation in our lives. We can obtain hope, we can obtain purpose, and we can obtain knowledge from the Lord that man cannot give us or take away from us. It's one of the things that I see in you, Derek, when you express your ideas confidently and when you talk about how just about nothing that you know the church can do or that the leaders can do in particular can really throw you off your path. Right. I love how you, you brought that in, and that will come to play when we talk about navigating general, general conference talks yes. later. Yes, yes, yes. But one thing that you brought out that was so beautiful is the power of Joseph uh, to ask a question. And in fact, the entire restoration is based on the fact that someone who didn't know something had a question. Yeah, we, of yeah. all people on the earth, should be okay with asking questions and asking God questions and expecting that God will answer in due time. Yes. Like, you know, other other churches may have a much more a much a much more structured theology where they're afraid of change, they're afraid of questions, they're afraid of all these other things. But to borrow someone's someone else's words, I can't remember who right now. But I would rather have, and we as saints, we as children of the restoration, we should rather have questions that cannot be answered than answers that cannot be questioned. Almost every section in the Doctrine and Covenants comes because of a question, either a question about the uh, biblical Mm -hmm. translation project that Joseph was doing or questions about, oh, here's this situation that we're into that there's no precedent Mm -hmm. for. Now we have to go to the Lord. Or like here's a uh, you know something in the mission field that needs to be done. Like everything arose from questions. That's the hunger that led to the mm-hmm. restoration. That's the hunger that fuels the ongoing nature of the restoration. And I just like a lot of us who are LGBTQ, we're gonna have questions, and that's not contrary to faith, but that's part of our faith. That's part mm-hmm. of our tradition. And I'm just very proud to be someone with questions. I like that. I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. That's really cool. Right. And I think that will come into play when we talk about general conference. Does this raise questions in us that we can take to the Lord? Or are we receiving these talks as answers that we cannot question? Yeah. And those are two different attitudes towards the talks of general conference. Yeah. That's a great segue, actually, if you have nothing else to add. Well, the one thing I I wanted to add, and it's connected— it has to do with what I'm going to call this domino theory of truth because a lot of people have simplified the restoration narrative in, in a way to try to persuade people that they've come across this domino theory of truth. They say, well, if the Book of Mormon is true, then Joseph Smith was a prophet. And if Joseph Smith was a prophet, then the church is true. And if the church is true, then the leaders today are appointed of God. And if the leaders today are appointed of God, then this thing that they said or this policy that I that they enacted must be right. Now, there's a couple of problems with this because they take this first domino, which is either about the Book of Mormon or the first vision, and say, well, if that's true, then everything else up until this random policy that we had last week 
it's all true. And while that might work for some people, setting up these dominoes like that in a chain reaction, my caution to everyone who's listening is to say it is so easy for the dominoes to fall the other direction. Like some concern about a contemporary statement, doctrinal perspective or policy, you can realize there's something going on here. There's a flaw here. This is not right or this is not – this doesn't make any sense. And that domino on the back end can cause all the other dominoes in sequence to knock all the way back. So it destabilizes their testimony of the Book of Mormon and of Jesus Christ. The fact that you set up the dominoes that way sets people up for failure. And so I want to caution people against that and to be more resilient, to hold on to each of these dominoes gently and somewhat independently and see how they're all connected, but don't just take it as an all-or-nothing thing. That's never how the restoration was supposed to be. And that gets into General Conference because we're going to hear talks that are going to be the back end of these dominoes where the Book of Mormon and the First Vision are the front end. And I'm like, if you set up the dominoes, you're setting yourself up for a major tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Just before we go on to a general conference, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay. So preparing for general conference now. As we prepare for general conference, unfortunately, one thing we can just about always count on is that there will be something said that is either insensitive, harmful, or just otherwise not helpful to the end of helping other people come unto Christ. And it's, uh, it's my hope personally that everyone in the church has a proper understanding of what the role of the brethren is, what our relationship to them is, and the implications of that for our relationship with and our journey to Christ. Now, in saying that, I kind of want to just highlight the purpose of the prophet, which is the same as the purpose of the church and the purpose of the temple and the purpose of the scriptures. And I think you've said this on the show before, Derek, so apologies for the plagiarism. Uh oh. I just remember you saying that the purpose of the church was to bring people to Christ, to unite people with God. And this is the purpose of the prophet, the purpose of the temple, the purpose of the scriptures. They're also imperfect, though, just by the simple virtue that they've all felt the human touch. But that is okay because they're just a means to an end and not the end in and of itself. They don't have to be perfect to be effective. Like, just ask anyone who has ever used a knife as a screwdriver. Dallin H. Oaks actually once explained that as a general authority... He has the responsibility to preach general principles, but he does not define all the exceptions. And I thought it was very interesting that he said that. But guess who does define those exceptions? And guess who is commanded to define those exceptions? There's always been more to church membership than doing whatever the prophet says, than marching in lockstep with the general church leadership. Like at the beginning of the year, We learned about seeking personal revelation, even on those things revealed to a prophet, like just to bring this back to the story of Nephi and uh, his vision of the tree of life. Lehi was left largely to interpret that vision 
And obviously, folks in his family were confused by some parts, as evidenced by the strifes among Nephi and his brothers, and the fact that Nephi asked a question and asked for his own revelation, for his own vision. Because Nephi demonstrated that he had his own questions, his own desires, and he received details during the interactive parts of that vision that were not made apparent in Lehi's account. We learned that interpretation and personal experience is relevant in some cases when it comes to personal revelation. So all of us should be able to take comfort in the fact that when the leaders speak to us in conference, they're not necessarily aware of all of us the way that we ourselves are aware of ourselves. And we have to therefore give them grace when they say hurtful things, but at the same time, we can also take some comfort in knowing that where they leave gaps or where they leave pain, the Lord can fill those gaps and can heal that pain. Yeah, that that is really important. They're They're speaking to... 16 million people they have to speak in generalities they don't have time yeah. to, to cover the exceptions yeah. they don't have time to cover how this gets Im- implemented locally for each individual person that would need to yeah. be individualized and guess what there is something that's individualized in this church it is the personal witness of the holy ghost to each individual that's that's where you go yep right we yep. all have the right to see tailored customized revelation that applies the general principles to the specifics of our individual situations so let me let me get into some sort of practical tips one would be to watch general conference in community that is have allies with you have people whom you love and trust with you in the room preferably but now we may have to do it separately but there's ways of watching together keeping in touch by twitter you can you can even like watch our public are we going to do a are we going to live tweet the conference of course we're going to live tweet the conference oh good well that's a way of like having a witness having an ally having someone who can shield you and, and realize oh you're not going through this alone you've got someone that's got your back that is on your side and is willing to, to to speak up. So watching community is the first one. Another tip is to take a break if you need to. You don't have to watch conference all at once. You don't have to watch it live. You can come back to it later if you need to, or you can opt out of a certain talk altogether if you need to mm-hmm. until someone else has reviewed it first. And... I have a third tip that is a little it's going to be a little bit controversial and people are going to think I'm weird and it's going to sound disrespectful but if I if I explain it well enough it's actually going to be beautiful and very respectful of the calling of the prophets and really respectful of Christ. All right. And it goes back to you know this idea of the wizard of Oz who was this big booming voice with all this thunder and smoke but then you pull back the curtain and it's just a just a dude. It's just a dude. Just a normal dude. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of one of the things we have to do. I mean, and that's no disrespect to say that this is a fellow human. No. Because it's not. that's the best of all of the prophets and the apostles in the scriptures. They all magnified their own weakness, which is why I quoted first Corinthians fifteen earlier. He says, I'm not even fit to be an apostle. Moroni says, wow, forgive my weaknesses because I can't write very well. I mean, all of the prophets and apostles, the best thing about them was that they pointed to Jesus Christ and then they got out of the way of Jesus Christ. Right. 
And that's the expectation I have of, of apostles and prophets today. And so how do we help get them out of the way? Well, oh, this is going to sound so weird. But when someone in the church, it can be a general authority, it can be the person in the ward, this applies to anyone. When someone in the church says something hurtful, harmful, or unkind, here's what you should do. You should imagine them sitting on a toilet and pooping. What? <laughs> yes. When they say something awful, hurtful, just imagine them in your head sitting on a toilet pooping. Because here's what it does is it humanizes yeah, them. Yeah, explain first. this, Derek. <laughs> it humanizes them. It allows you to connect with them as a fellow human because we all poop. And there's nothing disrespectful about noting that someone poops. That's just a fact of life. <laughs> yeah. And it grounds No, I mean No, I mean I'm like just gonna now, try that. Next time <laughs> next time somebody in authority over me tries to, you know, get one over on me and be like, Shut up, you poop. No, but what it also does is that it connects you with their common humanity, it builds a sense of empathy for them. But what it really does is it gets you to imagine them in a vulnerable position. There's it. It's like that Boggart in um in Harry Potter where you where you have to say ridiculous to the little thingy and then it turns into something non-threatening. Mm -hmm. This is the same tool. It explores our common humanity and makes them far less threatening, and it redirects us to Christ. And I know it sounds weird, but try it, and it may it may work for you. It may not work for you. I don't know. I don't know. It works for me. Uh, now that's probably more than people want to know because like oh no Derek's weird but all of my listeners probably already knew that I was weird just never insult Derek lest he imagine you pooping <laughs> but like but this gets back to now why is this respectful is because what it does is it redirects us all to Christ it gets out of the way of the conflict and hostility and says look we are both humans doing the best we can pooping the best we can we all do it and what's really glorious what's really glorious is that we get out of the way of one another and be vulnerable with one another and then that frees us up to be redirected to Christ. Mm. And this redirecting feature is really I think one of the best feature that we have in prophets and apostles. People will wonder, well well, why if if there's personal revelation or the scriptures, why do we need living prophets? And I think here's part of what it is for me is that every culture has its own blind spots. There's something that this culture does that other cultures in different times and places would think, oh, that's, that's completely obviously horrible. Why are they doing that? Things like slavery or, um, or dueling. Like, I don't understand dueling. Like, it's kind of obvious that that is really awful and, and weird. And, and, but, but some culture, you know... And here's the thing is that because every culture has its own blind spots that everyone in the culture is doing this thing and they don't re even realize it, that's why we have prophets both ancient and modern because all of the the ancient authors of scriptures, they had their blind spots too and they had their cultural biases and prejudices, but what they did is they had different ones than we do. And so they can serve as a checks and balances on us. And same thing with prophets today. Prophets and the people can serve as checks and balances, and and we get this infusion of light and knowledge from a different from a different set of biases and prejudices that God can use. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most important blind spots of our culture today, 
of modern America is that of economic injustice. Like if you look at the prophets of the Bible, they called out economic injustice all the time. They defended the poor, condemned the wealthy in the strongest terms. And we don't typically do that today in our culture. And so right. that's why I love studying the scriptures, not because they're perfect, but because they are coming at it with a different set of biases and blind spots and prejudices, which can serve as a check and balance on my own. I'm not going to claim that I'm objective and free from prejudice, but that's why I'm glad I have prophets who can mm -hmm. serve as a check and balance on that. Very practical, as you said, and I think uh, our listeners will be able to gain quite a bit from it as they work on navigating this next general conference. I hope this will allow people, and I do think it will, allow people and give tools to people to uh, be able to navigate their existence and their membership in this church. And another thing is, like I said, it's okay to reach out to others afterward or during and process this with someone. Then uh, before we move on to uh, housekeeping items, just one more thing to uh, let you guys know about. Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, with which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, just by way of business, Derek, where can people find us? Yeah, you can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, and you can find us also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. In the coming weeks, we're going to put more content on these, so make sure that you have subscribed and follow us and uh, that you react to what we're doing, ask questions, comment, share what we're doing, and that way we can be of the most help for people and we can be the most available to people to as many people as we can yeah good stuff derek all right if there's nothing else then we will see you folks next week see you and folks next week 